Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. There is a time and a place for the quiet, introspective work of repentance over your sin and meditation on its cost to Jesus at the cross. Absolutely, don't misread me, but listen carefully. We are to do that work before we come to the table, not at the table. Paul is explicit about this. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, quote, everyone ought to examine themselves. There's that language of introspection. Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. Now again, we read that and we imagine communion in our practice where you walk down from the back aisle to the cracker and the juice at the front of the stage, right? And we think before, like en route down to the front of the stage. It's not what he's saying. This was a meal on Sunday night with 50 or 60 rowdy Corinthians in some wealthy person's backyard, right? So he's saying before you show up Sunday night, before you get off work and you show up for the love feast with your church, first examine yourself. Take a little time that morning during the week. Is there anything in my life that is out of sync with my apprenticeship to Jesus? Am I crosswise with anybody else in the community and I need to make things right? Do that hard work and then come to the table. The table is what comes after that hard work of repentance and the, 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 the right heaviness to that moment. The table is what comes after it's then you celebrate because of my repentance on my part and more importantly because of the mercy of God through Jesus death burial and resurrection I'm good I'm righteous not just in the 80s word but like I'm right with God I'm right with the people to my right and left all is right again in the world let's eat let's drink let's throw a party Philip Yancey writes this, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. That's it. That is the heart of joy and gratitude and celebration and party mode. I, lo- I have Sonos. Anybody have Sonos? Like party mode is where like, a, you don't have it? It's, a, it's an app on your phone. Not, I have it. It's amazing. It will change your life. If you don't have Sonos, it will change your life for $190. It will change your life. <laughs> and if you get more than one, you like click a little thing that says party mode and all of the speakers in your house come on at extra high volume. It's awesome. That's the love feast, right? There it's party mode in the kingdom of God. Now, fifth, stay, you still with me? You still out there? You're like, I was a little bored, but you had me at party mode, okay? (laughs) Fifth, stay with me. The fifth name is the Lord's Supper. I'm guessing that you have heard that language before. It's straight out of 1 Corinthians 11 as well. That's because that's um, the most in-depth teaching on this practice in the New Testament. Paul writes, quote, so then when you come together, and he means for church, Is it not the Lord's Supper you eat? For, I'm sorry, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. 
For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Answer, it's not good. Go read it on your own time. Okay, there's a lot here. When you come together, the church would come together, as I said, Sunday nights for supper. And that's a a weird English translation, unless if you're from the Midwest. Dinner is really what we would say, right? Um, The church would come together for the Lord's Supper. Another translation, Jesus' dinner. And again, it was not a snack. It was not a bread and crack. It was a meal around a table. And it was the center of gravity for the church. Notice, when you come together, in Acts 20, he says, when you come together to eat, not to sing, not to listen to the teaching. All of that was in there, and we're for all of it. But when you come together to eat, and he calls this practice the Lord's Supper or Jesus' dinner. Now, there's a whole backstory here we don't have time to get into. The short version is this idea from the ancient Near East of a covenant meal. When, when you would make a covenant, which again, this is millennia before the modern legal system and contract law, but when you would make a covenant to enter into a specific kind of relationship that had a list of commitments with God or with one of the gods or with a business partner, partner you would make a sacrifice to the gods or to God on behalf of your partner, and then you would cut that covenant, you would make the sacrifice, then you would eat that sacrifice at the temple in the presence of God and in the presence of your covenant partner. And that covenant meal was an act of commitment to honor the covenant that you just made, okay? Now this is not a modern frame of reference, it's an ancient one, and this is what's in Paul's mind with, it's in what we think is in Jesus' mind because the Passover was a covenant meal, and it's what's in Paul's mind here with the Lord's Supper or Jesus' dinner. His idea is this has to be an act of commitment. You can't just show up like put a little pasta on the table, open a bottle of wine, do your thing, and call it the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says. It's not the Lord's Supper. You think it's the Lord's Supper. It's actually not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For it to become the Lord's Supper, it has to be a covenant meal. It has to be an act of commitment for you again to take up your cross, to follow Jesus, to leave behind your sin, and in faith, to place your full trust in Jesus and in his vision of what it means to be a human being. A scholar with an absolutely fantastic name, John Mark Hicks, (laughs) has this to say, and I think my favorite little book on this practice, quote, when we eat and drink, we renew our covenant with God. We pledge ourselves to keep the covenant It is a moment of rededication and recommitment. In the context of the worship experience, we voice our commitment to live worthy of the gospel. We vow to take up our cross, call Jesus Lord, and follow him into the world as obedient servants. The supper is the ritual moment when we renew the covenant vow we made in our baptism. That language in the middle to live worthy of the gospel, that he's riffing there on Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 11. That makes a lot of people nervous where Paul writes that we are to eat um, and drink in a worthy manner. And a lot of people read that and think, what what is Paul saying? Is he saying I have to be worthy to come to the table? Um, And most scholars argue, no, not at all. The whole point is that you're not worthy, that Jesus died on your behalf because of that. 
But what's right about that impulse is how most scholars interpret that is we do have to give worth to the table. There's a gravity to it. There's a a seriousness, not a bad seriousness, but a good one. There's a sense of you honor the table. You honor the body and the blood. You honor Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. You don't treat treat it flippant or cavalier or you do your own thing, or you manipulate it, or you warp it, or you corrupt it to your own end. No, you come face to face with Jesus. If your life is anything like mine, then there's a tension between Jesus' vision of human flourishing and your vision of human flourishing. And there's definitely a chasmic tension between his vision and our city's vision of human flourishing. At the table, we make a decision to again recommit to apprentice under Jesus. And in the areas where we have unanswered questions, or we don't really get our head around Jesus' vision yet, or we're not sure, or we have doubt, whether it's money or whether it's sex, I mean, talk about a cosmic difference between Jesus' vision of human flourishing and our city's vision of human flourishing. When it comes to sex, it's 180 degrees. You will never get Jesus to baptize the progressive vision of sex. He was a celibate Jewish rabbi whose teachings on sexuality are the most intense of any teacher in the entire Bible. And I think the most beautiful and honoring to the body and to sexuality and to human flourishing. But they are literally 180 degrees from what we hear every single day in this city. So at some point, you are faced with the same temptation that Adam and Eve were faced with, to redefine good and evil by yourself based on the voice in the back of your head or the voice of somebody out there rather than to trust Jesus' vision of human flourishing and good and evil and to find out, does sin lead to human flourishing like our city thinks it does or does it lead to death? And does obedience to Jesus, that dangerous word, obedience, that is anathema in our city, is it actually the way to what Jesus called the life that is truly life? My point is, we all have questions. We all have doubt. We all have tension. We're all in process. I get it. This is a safe place. But when you come to the table, there is a seriousness to that moment. You don't just show up and you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you're doing things, or you're in disobedience, or whatever. Well, I have my thing, whatever. And you eat and you drink. Either it's not the Lord's Supper in that moment, or worse, it is. And what Paul later writes in Corinthians 11, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And he goes on, there's this gnarly line in there, for this reason, some of you are sick and others have died. Now, we don't even know exactly what he's saying there, I don't think it's like, you know, God is up in heaven, strike you dead. But there, there is something. God is by default compassionate, but God is also holy. And when you step into covenant with the God who made your body, made your mind, made humanity, made the universe itself, there is a beautiful weight to that moment. And you are invited to trust him over yourself and to recommit your life into his hands. And that is not something to treat with a flippant, cavalier attitude, but with a healthy weight where you re-covenant with 
God. And not only with God, but again, same as the communion thing, with each other as well. Notice that in context, that scripture we read in Corinthians, Paul's not dealing with the problem of sexuality in that spot, he is in others, he's dealing with the problem of injustice. The backstory behind, there's all sorts of backstory I don't have time for, but behind Corinthians 11, it's in Corinth, which is the city on the Greek isthmus, and in Greco-Roman society, the dinner party was called a symposium, and there was a, there was a cultural architecture to it where the wealthy ate in one room and the slaves and the servants ate in another and waited on the wealthy, where after dinner there was a second part to the meal that was like a, they called it a convivia, where we get the word convivial, it was a drinking party, where the women and the children then left the room and the slaves came back in to the men and it was a kind of striptease and sex worker and drunken like orgy. And this was just normal. This wasn't like some crazy thing in the West Hills of Hollywood. This was just like the norm in Paul's world. And some of that, not all of that, but some of that cultural norm is seeping into the Corinthians' practice of the Lord's Supper. Not so much the sexuality part there, but the rich who are off work that day um, show up early, drink all the best wine, get a little bit drunk, eat all the food. The poor show up after a long, hard day of work. Remember, it's the work day at night for dinner, hungry, thirsty, and it's all gone. Right? And there's all this socioeconomic injustice behind it, and there's racial tension behind that story, and Paul is just not into it at all because it's the exact opposite of Jesus' vision for this practice. Think about the original Lord's Supper. Jesus is there at the table as the host, right? As that, the role of the wealthy host of the table. And then at the end, he takes off his robe, he takes on a towel, the garb of the slave, and he starts to wash the feet I was, this is a gross story. So I was at the post office a few days ago and I was waiting to ask this question and this person in front of me just had sandals on and their feet were so gross. Just like, God bless them, but <laughs> wow. And I just, and I was thinking about this teaching and I was thinking, man, like the washing of feet we think of that as this kind of like Christianese, like kind of, that would not have been fun at all. I was just looking at this person's feet thinking, Jesus, wow. <laughs> wow, I'm so glad that we no longer live in a sandal culture. I'm tennis shoes for the rest of my life, right? But I mean, this, was, this was a bit humiliating. It was, it was the nitty gritty. I mean, it was just there, right? And this is the example of Jesus. It's hard to get our head around, but Jesus' design for the Lord's Supper was as an act of social justice. Again, we think of social justice through the lens of government and welfare and NGOs and nonprofits, which is great. That's millennia ahead of its time. In the first century, none of that existed. Social justice was done for the most part through the church, and the Lord's Supper was the primary vehicle to feed the poor in every local church. We think that's the backstory to Acts chapter six, which we think is the origin story to the office of deacon, where they're waiting on tables and there's a dispute over this, that, or the other because the poor every day would show up for the love feast and they at least had a meal from the church of God, and the rich would share with the poor, and so on. This, my point is, this is the meal, the Lord's Supper, Jesus' dinner, the covenant meal where we come to the table and there's a healthy gravity to it and we recommit to our covenant with Jesus and with the community of Jesus there at the table. Finally, last name and then we'll move on, is the Mass. 
Um, this is the one name that isn't used in the New Testament. It's much later, depending on who you read, but nearer to the Middle Ages. After the gospel um, and the church spread to Rome and into the Latin language later, um, the liturgy, which was later developed around the Lord's Supper, was it ended with this Latin phrase, ita missa est, or in the English, go, you are sent out. Missa, that word in the middle, is from the same root word that we get the word mission. And later this phrase, ita missa est, was just shortened to the mass, ita missa est, the mass, for slang. And that's what our Catholic brothers and sisters call it to this day. And from this name we remember that the Jesus we follow, the covenant that we're in, is with a Jesus who broke himself open and poured himself out for the world. And we are called to follow his example, to break ourselves open, to pour ourselves out for our community, our roommate, our spouse, our family members, our coworker, the poor in our neighborhood, and our city, and around the world. What a great way to end the meal, by the way. I don't think we should like bring back the Latin, but go, you are sent out. I like that. Like end your dinner with your community this week. Go, you're sent out. Go, break yourself. Follow Jesus' example. Break yourself open. Pour yourself out for the life of the world. So to recap, six names, all of which have something to remember or actualize. One, communion. Two, the breaking of bread. Three, the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving, the love feast, the Lord's Supper, and the Mass. Now notice, the common denominator in five of the six the five that stem from the New Testament itself, is they all envision this practice as a meal, not a cracker and juice, right? Eat and drink, not taste and sip. Which, and New Testament scholars and historians are unanimous. There is pretty much no doubt that for hundreds of years, this practice was a full-on meal around a table, usually, but not always, in a home which raises the question, okay, how how did the meal become the mass? How did a love feast around a table, 20, 30, 40 people crammed into the back of a house, food there, active social justice, leftovers for the poor, become, turn into this quiet contemplative sacrament, that's not language used at all in the New Testament, and I have issues with it, in a church building on Sunday. I'm glad you asked. Let's pretend like you asked, right? Um, Thought experiment. If somebody were to ask you, hey, will you text me a picture of your church? I would be really interested to see what you would text them. Um, My guess is that most people would text, uh, you know, a picture of First Baptist from the street, or those of you with a drone from like a pie, or whatever the thing is. Or um, more than likely, a picture of this moment right now, of worship by singing or the gathering. Um, Go to pretty much any church website in the Western world, and the homepage is a picture of the Sunday morning experience with people singing. And again, that's great. I'm not against it at all. We're all for it, especially at the seven. I love how you sing. But the earliest picture that we have of the church is the Fractio Panis Fresco, a famous painting on the wall of a catacomb underneath Rome that dates to the early second century, like right around the 110s. And it is a picture of a church. Notice, it's not hundreds of people around a stage, it's six people, uh, seven people. (laughs) Sorry, the night is late. Seven people around, it's a bit hard to tell due to the, you know, kind of wear and tear, but around a table, turned to face each other, and on the table there is wine, There's fish in the middle, 
and then there's bread over to the right. That was how people thought of church for hundreds of years. Now, there were megachurches from the very beginning. That's not a new American thing. The church in Jerusalem by Acts chapter 4 was at least 5,000 people strong. But across the empire, it was illegal to worship Jesus for hundreds of years. So most of the time, the church was in hiding. It was, I mean, it was literally like punk rock. It was against the law. And so you were hiding underground in a catacomb at 5 a.m. in the morning or in a house or in a back room of a store. And for centuries, the love feast was the norm. It was the center of gravity for the church. Eventually, um, the worship of Jesus was legalized. And depending on which historian you read, most argue that Constantine's conversion in the fourth century was a political power play. It was because oh, by that time, it was the tipping point. Over half of the empire had started to follow Jesus and some way, shape, or form, but it was technically illegal, and so he had to, quote, convert and make it legal and the religion of the empire and all of that. In that moment, a lot went right, but a lot went wrong, and um, eventually, the church now, millions of people moved out of the home into the basilica or a converted temple and then started to erect cathedral after, after cathedral all over the Roman Empire. In 364 AD, the Council of Laodicea forbade the love feast in the church building. You had to do it off grounds, and I'll talk about why in a minute. And then in 692, at the Council of Trulin, it was banned altogether never to really return to the Western church. It was a, tra I would argue, it was a tragic moment. Now, haters gonna hate. You know, all of you are like, yeah, the church is corrupt. What it, it is, but let's talk about why. There were practical, pastoral, and theological reasons for this shift. Practical, it's one thing to feed 20 or 30 people in a house. It's another thing to feed thousands of people in a cathedral. The church in Jerusalem, the kind of original mega, got around this with the both and rhythm of, quote, in the temple and house to house. That's the line from Acts 2. They came together at the temple, which was gigantic. Thousands of people for, you know, teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or whatever else, worship by singing, we don't know exactly. And then they subdivided into, our guesses, hundreds of house churches. And we read in Acts 2, they broke bread from house to house every single day. That's the model that we operate off of here here at Bridgetown, in the temple, so to speak, at First Baptist Church by the hundreds on Sundays, and then from, we have 70 house churches or Bridgetown communities during the week. Now, if you don't have house churches or Bridgetown communities, that's not an option. So there's the practical. Then there was the pastoral. Um, you've read Jesus' biography. Jesus was just eating and drinking with all sorts of really scary people. And that was just his heart posture of hospitality, just how whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you think about God and life and morality, whatever your vision, you are welcome at the table with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is the heart posture of Jesus and therefore the heart posture of God. And so it moved on into the early church and the love feast was socially porous. It was, for the first couple hundred years, it was open to pretty much anybody, which is great, but that made it rife for abuse easy picking for a false teacher, ripping off the naive for money, or for kind of sin or false doctrine, or for the rich, you know, ripping off the poor, or people getting drunk, like it was just, there were all sorts of problems and issues with the love feast, because it turns out that even when you follow Jesus, if you put a lot of followers of Jesus together, we do some screwy things. Who would have thought, right? Is your community anything like mine? It's not heaven on earth. It's a little bit of both, right? So on and so forth. And then you have theological reasons that I don't have time to lay out, and none of you really care. But um, 
There were ways that Platonic Greek philosophy moved into Middle Age theology, and there's all sorts of, you know, kind of Greek behind it and Latin behind it, the accidentia and the substantia and, and the way that the bread became, the, there was all this debate and controversy over Jesus' line, this is my body um, and this is my blood, and I don't have time to get into that, but it goes to the zenith of the corruption of this practice in the 14th century. There have been some highs and some lows in church history that was... I think kind of the ultimate low. At, it, at the worst of the worst, the priest said the mass in Latin, nobody even spoke Latin anymore, behind a screen, facing away from the church, and was the only one to eat the bread. And it was not even mystical anymore, it was magical and weird, right? So the reformers, and the Protestant Reformation, which was, if you don't know church history, was this great sweeping reform with all sorts of issues, but reform movement through the church in the West. And the reformers from Luther in Germany to Tyndale in England to Calvin in Switzerland and France, um, the main thing that really sparked this reformation, at least for a lot of them, was the corruption of this practice. And brilliant, courageous men and women made a stand against the corruption. And the reformers got a lot of great work done in our theology of communion to kind of get us back on track. But sadly, they never really got to our practice of communion. You have a few, um, in particular from the Anabaptist tradition, who went all the way back to the origins. The Moravians in 1450s Bohemia, the Brethren in Switzerland, and then later pre-colonial America moved back to the love feast. And still to this day, we have a couple that was at church this morning that grew up in a Brethren church, and they still practice the love feast. You have the Quakers. It's a mit George Fox people here tonight. So, wow, wow there you have it. So, you know, outsiders hear about Quakers and hear Quakers don't practice the Lord's Supper or whatever. It's not actually true. Um, best as I can get my head around it, Quakers just believe that every meal with other followers of Jesus is the Lord's Supper. Frankly, that's not all that bad of theology. But for whatever reason, ever since the Reformation, it's still on the fringe, never at the center. It never, this kind of back to the meal never has caught on, at least in the West, to the point that, my, all that to say, if you're here and you're like, I never even knew that this was originally a meal around a table, you're not alone. In fact, that's, that was me for most of my life. That's most of the people to your right and left. Most people in the West don't even realize that this never started out as a sacrament. That's all way later language. Never started out as a cracker and juice in a quiet, somber moment in front of a stage on a Sunday. It was a raucous, la it was party mode on Sonos. And it was a celebration and it was a covenant to follow Jesus again with your community. It was an act of social justice and it was a call to break yourself open and pour yourself out in the week ahead. So, we, my friends, are faced with a decision. The original practice of communion is incongruent with how we practice it at Bridgetown Church. So we have to ask the question, what should we do or not do about it? Of course, one option is we just listen to a, an hour-long theology and history lesson, and we think that was weird, and then we just move on and just keep on back to business as usual. Hopefully, you know, that's just not how we want to follow Jesus. For years now, we've been thinking about a change in how we practice communion. Um, seven years ago, is anybody around that long ago? Seven, yeah, some of you. Seven years ago, we taught through 1 Corinthians, 
And there was a key moment in the life of our church, in my life, when we got to chapter 11, and I'm teaching through, and I'm doing all this reading and research around, for the first time really in my life, around this practice. And I was rocked. This is when I was first exposed to all of the history and the theology behind it, and it was really my first, like, whoa, shock and awe moment. And um, we changed how we practice this at that. If you were here seven years ago, we stood up one Sunday and said, we need to make a change. We started to practice the Lord's Supper every single week. We started to practice it all at the same time together, eat and drink at the same time. We started at that point to put it at the end of the gathering as the climax of our time together and so on. What we really wanted to do seven years ago was to move the whole thing from Sunday to our communities, from stage to a table. And yep, but there were reasons that we made the decision not to, mostly practical and pastoral. A ton of people at that point in our church's story were still not in a Bridgetown community. And so we just have been sitting on it for seven years in the back of my mind and our leadership just gnawing at us. Like we don't practice this, how it was set up by Jesus to go forward. And I've just been thinking about this. Um, some of you know my own journey into life around a table and community. I grew up in the mega church. I'm an introvert. That whole thing of like come on Sunday, listen to an interesting, hopefully, talk, and then just do your own thing with Jesus the rest of the week. I loved that. I miss those days. They were wonderful. When I say they were wonderful, not for my apprenticeship to Jesus. They were wonderful just for my pleasure, all right? Um, I'm, but when I started to move in, we you know, moved into a neighborhood, and uh, we had an elder by the house next to us, and like when we just started to do life together around a table in community, which again, for some of you is old news. You grew up that way for me, Mr. Introvert, grew up in a Sunday thing. That was a whole new reality for me. It changed my life. And it kept just gnawing at me. What this practice, a weekly meal with my community, has gotta be one of the most mundane, easy things. It's not sexy, it's not glamorous. There's not this emotional or spiritual high at the end of the night but yet it's changed my life. What is it? And it did not hit me until just more recently. It did not hit me, oh, I know why it's changed my life. This is communion. This is the breaking of bread. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the love feast. This, oh, that's what this is. We've now been in community for 10 years, the oldest members of my community. We're a decade in this year, and it's changed my life. A weekly meal with the same 12 people who now have 18,000 children. <laughs> Actually, just 12, but that is a lot, all right? This practice has changed my life, and I want that for you. So, drum roll, you don't need a drum roll. But, um, I've been hinting at this all summer, it's, it's no surprise, it's an open secret, but as of this Sunday, we are officially moving our practice of communion from a cracker and juice in front of the stage on Sunday with hundreds of people to a full meal around a table with 10, 20, or 30 people in your Bridgetown community. We will continue to practice the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, but instead of three times on Sunday with hundreds of people in the room, we have 70 or so communities in pretty much every single neighborhood across the urban core of the city in all 70 of those communities. For all of you that are not yet in a community, I just wanna to speak to that. We love you, you're welcome here. We're so happy that you're here. Our entire staff and pastoral team is here to assist you in your journey whenever you're ready to take the next step into a Bridgetown community. Basics class is coming up in just a few weeks. 
sign up online, show up in a few Sundays, sit with us for a week or two or three for some in-depth teaching and training for how to do life and community around a table, and then we just connect you with other Bridgetown followers of Jesus who are in your neighborhood or close by. We will continue, for all of you not in a community, and just for our Sunday, we will continue to practice it here once in a while, every two or three months, which for a lot of tr traditions, you only do it on Sunday every two or three months or every year. So we're in good company. And, and when we do it here, I think we'll just say, this is a symbol of a symbol, right? This bread, this cracker, and this juice is a symbol of the full meal that is itself a symbol of our life with Jesus, and we just want to grow and mature into the kind of people who are present to Jesus at church on Sunday night, present at the table, my picnic table this coming Tuesday night on the front patio and all week long. That said, our practice for the coming week is all up at practicingtheway.org slash eating and drinking. It is very simple for all of you in a community, which is most of us now, just, and you, have, you already have a weekly meal. The practice is just to repurpose your weekly meal as communion. Um, again, if you're not in a community, sign up for basics or just like grab a few people who follow Jesus and invite them over to your apartment or whatever. You know some other followers of Jesus who live nearby? Thursday night, we're doing the Lord's Supper. We're doing the love feast. Don't, if, they, if they're not here, don't call it that. That will just weird all of them out, right? We're doing the Thanksgiving meal. Like, wait, that, that's weird too. Whatever you want to call it. Communion, call it whatever you want. There's no rule book for how to do this. There's so much space for creativity and room and freedom in the practice on the site for you this week. We have some best practices for kind of the elements to set up. It's all there in the practice. Talk through that with your community. Um, we, have a we have a liturgy in there from, talk about nerd moment, there was this killer archeological find at the end of the 19th century of this little Greek papyrus that is entitled the Didache in Greek or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It is the oldest church manual we have. We think it dates back to the end of the first century, right around the same time as the writing of Revelation. It's a how-to-do church manual. It's a great little read. You can read it in 10 minutes. It's online for free. Just Google Didache, D-I-D something um, in Greek. And, um, and it's fantastic. And there's a whole chapter in there for how to practice what they call the, the Thanksgiving and the love feast. So that's in there. There's a prayer over the bread, a prayer over the cup that you do at the beginning. And then there's a prayer at the very end of the meal. For some of you, last word before we end. I just wanna call some of you in a Bridgetown, if you're not in a community, again, this is, and I know I'm a broken record here, but we just wanna call you again to life around a table with other followers of Jesus. If you've had a rough go of it, we're here to help you and pastor you through that. For those of you in a community, I wanna call you to level up when it comes to the meal. So in my community, we eat good. Let me tell you, every Tuesday night, we eat so well, we all pitch in, we all bring something, even those of us that aren't really like culinary, we have like, we learn to cook something, even if it's like four different things. We, YouTube is a thing, like Google how to make pasta on YouTube. It's there, <laughs> who would have thought? It's there. And I just want, especially there's a lot of young people in the room tonight, I wanna call you to contribute to your weekly meal. We hear one of the main problems that we have at a staff level in coaching community leaders, like literally one of the top problems right now at our church, is that people do not pitch into the weekly meal. Either they don't bring anything, or it's like eight people bring chips and salsa, and that's all people ever bring. Or it's like, I'll bring the chicken, and there's 20 people there, and they show up with like 
a little plate of chicken. And it's like, what? Like, and this is on a, ser- a little sarcasm. This is a serious problem right now. All across our church, we have communities that don't eat together or can't eat together or three people do all the cooking and then get tired and burned out and people just like riff off. So this is a call in love, older brother call, to level up, right? If I can learn to cook, have you seen me? Anybody can learn to cook. Just YouTube it, right? Tammy in our home, like, T is the, is the artist. I'm the sous chef. I'm like organized. I multitask. I set a mean table. You should see how fast I chop the zucchini. It's insane, <laughs> right? And there's about half a dozen meals that I kill it at. I have no idea how to do anything else, but there's about half a dozen. I got dinner tonight, and it is good. It's the same three meals, but it's really good. If I can do it, you can do it. I don't have money. Yeah, you have an iPhone and raw denim, and you just got back from France. I think you can level up from chips and salsa, all right? So I say that. I'm playful, that's not mean at all. I do wanna call you, step up, contribute to your community, join a community, do life around table, follow Jesus of Nazareth, his life is the best way to be human. Let's all stand to end. I just wanna read this out loud all together from Jesus one more time, say it with me. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We love you. Have a great week. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.